Well, good afternoon. It's, it's about 12 seconds before 1.30. So I'm just going to uh, get started here and try to bring together a couple of threads to see whether a pattern is emerging in what I call the libertarian uh, synthesis, a number of ideas floating around in moral philosophy, in uh, political science and economics and so on. Uh, so if we start out, there's a, a very famous statement that I think put pretty neatly a substantial part of the libertarian vision. It's from Adam Smith. It was written down from one of his lectures by Dougal Stewart, so one of his students. It was not in his published works, but it appeared shortly after his, he died. Little else is requisite to carry a state to the highest degree of opulence from the lowest barbarism, but peace, easy taxes, and a tolerable administration of justice, all the rest being brought about by the natural course of things. All governments which thwart this natural course, which force things into another channel, or which endeavor to enrest uh, the progress of society at a particular point, are unnatural and to support themselves are obliged to be oppressive and tyrannical. One thing I like about Adam Smith is his modesty. He doesn't say perfect and absolute justice is necessary. A tolerable administration of justice. The understanding that uh, things don't always work as well as we want. People make mistakes. There are frailties. We should expect that. But we can do better. And you can raise a society from poverty to wealth. And this has been shown over and over and over. And this combination, peace, that's the most important first condition. When you're in constant warfare, you cannot create wealth. Easy taxes and a tolerable administration of justice. Um, now, if we think about the emergence of libertarian thinking, first one, it wasn't invented in someone's living room. And I sometimes hear uh, students of this or that person say, oh, it was in someone's living room. This is an absurdity and a fantasy. Uh, it's a part of a long tradition of thinking. And I tried to indicate uh, some of that. It's a modern idea, but you can find elements of it, seeds you might think of in ancient thought, uh, in medieval thought in both Europe and in Asia. And someone asked me earlier about uh, Asian liberalism, and there's a very rich tradition of that as well. And in China right now, in Hong Kong and Taiwan, is a big movement of neo-Confucian libertarianism, which is very popular in the universities, drawing on the Confucian tradition for insights uh, that are supportive of modern libertarian ideas. And figures such as uh, Lu Juning and Joseph Chang uh, have been uh, writing in this tradition. Now, the other element that I hinted at uh, in the earlier talk is that libertarian ideas were, in some sense, a defense of things that had emerged earlier against the absolutist state. So the old view that we sometimes heard, when I say old, I mean when I was very young, uh, that the divine right of kings is medieval, and now we have democracy. This is really backward. The divine right of kings is a modern idea. It is an idea of modernity, that the state or the king is above the law. 
And the older idea was everyone lives according to the law, a higher law, but then also the customary laws, the way that we do things in our community. And over time, there were evolved privileges, immunities, and liberties that people enjoyed. And one of the things we'll trace is how liberties became liberty. That's part of the systematic transition from the Middle Ages to the modern world. People enjoyed their liberties, and then the transition is saying, what we want is our liberty, not just this and this and this and this particular customary rights, but our rights and virtue of being human beings. Uh, in the process of doing that, uh, thinkers, theologians, economists, philosophers, journalists, writers, all sorts of people sharpened these ideas, made them more clear, but they didn't just invent them out of whole cloth. They were building on a long, long tradition. One way to think about classical liberalism or libertarianism is having three fundamental pillars uh, that support each other. They're mutually supportive, create free, prosperous, and peaceful societies. The first is the idea of individual rights, and I'll go into that a little bit. Uh, the idea that rights are not given to us by the state, by the king, by Mrs. Clinton, or anyone like that. Uh, they are imprescriptible rights. That is to say, they're not prescribed. They're something you have. You don't have to go to someone and say, oh, I'd like a prescription for some rights. Rob mentioned this, first comes rights and then comes government. And that's made very clear in the American Declaration of Independence. In order to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. You secure what is already yours. You have rights because you're a human being, not because you're a member of this community or that community. You may have particular rights on the basis of that, but you are fundamental rights. Your natural rights are in virtue of being a moral being not because of your color or your religion or other features. And everybody has those rights. A distinctive feature of the modern libertarian tradition is to hold that every human being is precious. No human being is exactly like another, and we are not interchangeable cogs. We are not here just to live for the sake of other people, our rulers. Everyone has a life to lead quote a very famous leveler writer. Second, though, is the idea of spontaneous order. And this is supportive of the first. There's a reason for that. The response of people who believed in absolutism is one we hear today. There's got to be a boss. There has to be someone who creates the order. A boss, a chief. Because if you do what you want to do, you do what you want to do, and you do what you want to do, there'll be chaos. There needs to be coordination. And that only happens when you have a supreme leader of some sort. Well, various names at different times, commissars or the Führer or uh, the, uh, a king or an emperor or whatever it might happen to be. There's got to be a boss. But the response drawn from what we would now call the social sciences showed that's not true. That lots of order in our lives emerges without anyone having designed it, implemented it, imposed it, created it, conceived of it. It turns out that when people have individual rights that are well-defined and legally secure and can be transferred for the bulk of them, 
at relatively low cost. That's a tolerable administration of justice part. They will create complex forms of social order and coordination more complex than any ruler could have ever imagined. And that's very counterintuitive. It's hard to wrap our minds around this. We have minds that, are, that have evolved to seek patterns of order, to take a very simple example. You know those things called googly eyes that you buy? They have the little, uh, little black dot that moves around in the circle you paint, paste them on things. And you can make all kinds of funny things look like human faces, fence posts and locks and so on. Uh, they're, in my opinion, endlessly amusing. I love them. Well, the reason is our minds see faces everywhere. That's why we see faces in clouds. We're predisposed, the structure of our brain, to see human faces everywhere. There are no faces in the clouds. They're random patterns of water molecules. But we find faces in them. And whenever you see the two little eyes, you see a face there. It has something to do with babies looking for mommy's face and identifying that when they're infants. But we also look for the creator of an order. When we see order, we expect someone created it. So let's say you know, I had a neighbor some years ago who lived on my street. She was a retired lady, and she gardened a lot. And she made this gorgeous garden. It was very beautiful. She had all these nice flowers. And, and I would occasionally thank her. I said, I tried to be poetic sometimes. I said, thank you for generating these positive externalities. Uh, I'm a little romantic. Uh, and uh, it was a beautiful garden. But imagine I walked by and I said, wow, this is an interesting pattern. I guess it just grew that way, right? It emerged. She would have been hurt and insulted. Uh, it was beautiful because she made it beautiful. That's what we think of. That's our default model of order. Someone made it orderly. But in fact, most order isn't like that. It grows. No one designed it. An example I like to use is the English language. Uh, so some people here who are not native speakers of English will recognize this. The letters O-U-G-H, naturally pronounced oog. But put a T in front of it, and it's tough. C, and it's cough. D, it's dough. P-L, it's plow. T-H-R, it's through. T-H, it's though. It's really irritating <laughs> if people are learning English. It doesn't make any sense. Uh, no one would have invented English. Only an evil, malevolent person <laughs> would, would have done that. Uh, but it works OK. It grew over time. And it's fairly good at coordinating people who are speaking. Uh, so it's OK. It's a spontaneous order. Even the French government, with all of its power, cannot control the evolution of French. And Le Weekend sneaks in. And in Canada, you, this is a little painful, uh, uh, the Le Flat Tire, uh, <laughs> and so on. Uh, in German, you have this little painful experience. Uh, young people today talk of their job. Very <laughs> irritating. It's their Arbeitsplatz. And they'll have, even say das word processing instead of the more natural, the elektronische Dateverarbeitung, which is correct. Uh, languages change. They evolve. Once they're fixed, they're dead, like Latin. Latin is a dead language. Uh, it doesn't change. But if it's a living language, it's evolving and changing all the time. And the market economy, 
is an evolving, spontaneous order that brings about all kinds of coordination. The way I like to think of it, the fundamental problem of economics is not solving some complex equation from your macro textbook. The fundamental question is this. When you go to the grocery store, how did all that stuff get there? Why is it there? Why is it not someplace else? And why are there carambola star fruit, from wherever they grow them, carambolia, <laughs> in this place where I will buy them? And I happen to like them a lot. I think they're delicious. Uh, all these things from all over the world, who made that happen? How did it happen? It's a spontaneous order. It's through the market economy. And even law is a spontaneous order. Laws evolve in various ways. They're not the product of the legislator's mind or will. They change and evolve. Uh, but here's the key. <clears throat> to have a spontaneous order that is conducive to human flourishing, you need to get the right rights, the right rules. Adam Smith is frequently misquoted by people who haven't read him or certainly haven't thought about him as saying the following. Adam Smith said, so long as people follow their self-interest, everything's great. How dumb do you think we are? We know that's not true. Well, of course, that's not what Adam Smith said. He didn't say anything remotely like that. He was aware that thieves follow their self-interest when they steal from us. What he meant was, if you get the rules right, and then people happen to follow their self-interest, which, by the way, for Smith was not narrow selfishness. It was the interest of selves, which could include your family and your community and other things as well. Uh, he understood that when they do that and the rules are right, you will generate an orderly society that will be harmonious. But the key was to get the rules right. Well, for that, you need the third leg, and that is the idea of limited government and the rule of law. Some institution that can help us to define our rights, what's yours and what's mine. This is not intuitively obvious in many, many cases. Think about water rights and so on. We need some institution that can help to say, what's yours, what's mine? What are the rules of just procedure? What are the institutions that will help us to defend and enforce our rights? And then to be able to defend them. Now, the key element here, though, and this is very, very important, is that government itself must be put under the law. And that's a hard thing to do, to have a law-governed state, a state that does not say, we make the laws and we are above the laws, but an institution that is itself subject to the laws. And this was, of course, the great challenge that the American founders faced, how to create a government under law. <clears throat> Think about it a bit like a chair, uh, each leg will support the others. And you're able, then, to have a stable platform. So when rights are well-defined and secure, you get a more orderly society, not less orderly, not chaotic. Law defines and protects rights, but here's the key. It's not the function of the law or of the law-enforcing body to create the order. The order will emerge. That's so hard for most people to understand, especially politicians. They can't stand it. They say, I know what needs to be done. Just let me do it. And we have to say, no. Your job is to create the framework of justice and security and let the order emerge, not to create the businesses and the products and so on. 
so let's turn to the first element, individual rights. They create a foundation for voluntary and peaceful social coordination. Right? It allows people to utilize the knowledge that they have for mutual benefit. I know what you can do, what I can do. It makes it possible for people who even have very different interests and ends and styles of life to get together and coordinate for mutual advantage. <laughs> right? So you don't have to be of the same group or tribe or religion to be able to work together when you know, yes, I like that picture too, uh, what your rights are. Now, those ideas had roots also tracing back into ancient philosophy. A great deal of what we know about ancient philosophy comes from this one man, Marcus Tullius Cicero. One of the reasons was he wrote such beautiful Latin. His books were copied over and over and over as examples of good Latinity. And so his books persisted when many other books uh, that we would like to have were lost. Now, in 43 BC, he was murdered. Uh, Mark Antony had him killed uh, because he had been critical of him. He was a defender of the old republic and was critical of Mark Antony. And uh, Mark Antony made a deal with Octavian, Caesar Augustus, and had him murdered. It's quite a dramatic story. When they caught him and he was in his litter, he put his head out and he said to the assassins, just do it correctly and don't make a mess of this. Uh, and then his head and his hands, he was Italian, so part of his expressive behavior, uh, were displayed in the forum. And the wife of Mark Anthony came and pulled out the, the tongue and stuck a silver pin through it so he would be shut up forever, a rather malevolent person. But in his very important book on duties, Theophysius, which was written at the very end of his life when he was pretty much aware he was going to be killed at some point, uh, he wrote this very powerful and profound book on the duties that we have in life. An office, of course, the English word comes from the Latin for duty. When you get an office, you don't get just a power. You have a duty. That is what you accept. The office is to accept this responsibility. And in it, he made a statement that is quoted many, many times in the subsequent literature. It's about the natural law. We are all constrained by one and the same law of nature. And if, this, if that is true, then we are certainly forbidden by the law of nature from acting violently against another person. And this becomes a kind of foundation for this idea of natural human rights that are common to all of us. This book was one of the most widely printed books when the printing uh, press comes out after uh, the Bible. Now, this idea then is articulated in the context of the church. There's a very famous uh, uh, decretum of Innocent IV, one of the great lawyer popes. And it has to do with what is called in Europe the Crusades, which means the war for the cross, the violent conflict between Islamic and Christian armies uh, in roughly the Middle East. And the question was, can Christians dispossess Muslims and Jews of their land, their property, their political jurisdiction, and their lives because they are not believers of the true faith? And Innocent says, no. You may take back what was taken from you and no more because dominium, that's self-control, mastery, possession and jurisdiction can belong to infidels, so non-Christians for him, licitly and without sin, for these things are made not only for the faithful but for every rational creature, as has been said. So every rational being, and it doesn't matter 
that that person is not a Christian. That person has rights, although that person rejects what he believed was the true religion. This is a very important statement. And as we know from the history of this time, uh, not much observed in practice by the various armies. But established as a legal and moral principle, it was very important and very powerful. Uh, this idea is then further elaborated by different thinkers. Marsilius of Padua, who was on the imperial side in the fight between the empire and the church for a long time, addressed this question about ownership, dominium, can be used to mean ownership, refers to the human will or freedom in itself. It is through these that we are capable of certain acts and their opposites. He says, we own our acts. We have ownership of our acts. John Locke says this in his essay concerning human understanding. We own our acts. It's what makes us who we are, the things that we do. And now we say in contemporary English, own up to it. The phrase comes through, it's your act, it's your responsibility. So we are moral agents. And to be a moral agent means not merely that I have desires, which is how it's sometimes formulated today. We should have rights because we have desires. No. We have rights because we have obligations, because we have responsibilities for what we do. We are moral beings. And moral beings have, at the very least, the right to the fulfillment of their moral obligations. And from this, people developed ideas of imprescriptible individual rights. Those were universalized, and in particular, when the Europeans came in contact with these other people. They called them the Indians. It's an interesting question, why? Some say because they thought they had gotten to India. Others because they're Indios, they're people of God, rather disputed question. And they were treated quite terribly by the Spanish conquerors and others, uh, enslaved them, massacred them, and so on. And a group of people within the church in Spain stood up to defend them. People associated with what is now known as the School of Salamanca, which is a kind of proto-libertarian uh, intellectual hotbed. And Francisco de Vittori, you can see he's a churchman there. He was a priest. He says, every Indian has free will, is the master of his actions. And by natural law, every man has the right to his own life and to physical and mental integrity. He argued against forcible baptism and forcible conversion of the Indians. It's very important for him as a Christian priest to say it is a sin. And he's very clever. He said, if you force them to convert at the point of a sword, you commit an act of violence against another human being, another creature created in the image of God. And second, you force that person to commit the sin of hypocrisy regarding sacred matters, and that sin will fall on your head, not on the head of the person who was put to the sword. And this is a very powerful argument for, for the members of the church. His book had a great deal of influence. Uh, and then one of his collaborators, pupils, Bartolome de las Casas, who wrote a very powerful book, which you can actually get in English. Uh, in 1550, he debated Juan Guinness de Sepulveda, who defended the enslavement of the Indians. Juan Guinness de Sepulveda's argument was, in a nutshell, God so loves the Spaniards, he created an entire continent of, of servants for us to do stuff. And it is good for them because they have no natural will of their own. They need us to give them something to do. Because otherwise, they who knows what they would do. 
So they need us. It's good for them and good for us, and God did it out of his love. And Delos Casas, as you can imagine, rips this uh, to pieces and destroyed him in the debate. And it's available, uh, his side, he was all written down, in defense of the Indians. And he says, look at them. They have kingdoms, cities with large populations. They have great cities, kings, judges, and laws, commerce, buying, lending, selling, all the contracts of the law of nations. They're human beings. He wrote a book called The Devastation of the Indies that was a huge bestseller in Europe and used by the British, who's anti-Spanish propaganda, by the way, in which he described horrifying crimes that he had witnessed in the New World. He went to the New World as a young adventurer, <clears throat> uh, full of excitement. He had seen Christopher Columbus sail off. He said, I want to go to the New World and make my fortune. And what he saw shocked him. Human beings hunted from horseback for sport. Uh, the flesh of human beings sold in butcher shops as food for dogs. And he said, this cannot be right. And he was converted. <coughs> Uh, to oppose this, this butchery and this uh, monstrous behavior and dedicated his life to it. He concluded his uh, famous speech, the very end, it's very powerful. He says, the Indians are our brothers and Christ has given his life for them. Why then do we persecute them with such inhuman savagery when they do not deserve such treatment? The past, because it cannot be undone, must be attributed to our weakness provided that what has been taken unjustly is restored. A very magnanimous approach. You cannot undo the past, but you can restore to people uh, what was taken from them. He also, by the way, was a free market economist. He wrote a book on usury and the charging of interest and why it was acceptable and rational and so on. So this movement to defend the rights of very foreign people, very different people who don't share your language, your culture, your religion, but they deserve to be respected and protected. It was a very powerful part of this proto-libertarian synthesis. And then in the context of religion, and we had a discussion of freedom of religion, and one of the most important figures, Sebastian Castellio, was a very powerful voice for religious freedom. And he did it because he was religious, not because he was not religious. He said, this is a wrong thing to do. It's a crime. And re referring to the killing of Michael Servetus by the Genevans, as he put it, to kill a man is not to, Servetus was burned alive, is not to protect a doctrine, but it is to kill a man. That's all you did. You killed a man. You did not refute his views. You did not rebut him. You did not show he was wrong. You just murdered him. And this was a very powerful challenge in Europe. And he was truly a, a great and a very brave human being. He advocated limited government. He said, we can live together peacefully. People of different professions, Catholics, Lutherans, Calvinists, anybody who's willing to live peacefully, even though there will always be differences of opinion from time to time, we can at any rate come to general understandings. General understandings meaning about living together, not just about theology, about living together, can love one another and can enter the bonds of peace pending the day when we shall attain unity of faith. So he did believe that someday everyone would see the true faith, but until that day, let's just live together peacefully. Just be able to live together. And for that, you need a limited government, a government that does not intrude into these matters. I want to make a little digression about the idea of rights. 
something so important in the Western tradition that is often overlooked, and it's worth pondering for a moment. Even in the English language, we use the, right in the word right in different ways. There's, of course, right hand and so on. But when we talk about it in a legal context, there's objective right. Aristotle talked about what is justice. That disposition or habit which renders men apt to do just things, which causes them to act justly, to wish what is just. So that what is right refers to the right thing to do. This is the right thing. But then there's another use of the word right uh, in English and other languages. We say it's my right, my right to do that, your right to do that. Not quite the same, but are they connected? So Ulpian, the great Roman lawyer cited in the Digest of Justinian, he says, the basic principles of right are to live honorably, not to harm another, and to render to each his own. Here he's actually channeling Cicero, who had argued this in the context of the Roman law. To render to each his own, that is his right, to give to his right. So that's called subjective right. It has nothing to do with subjective, meaning arbitrary or anything like that. So it means the right of the subject versus the right state of the world is objective right. Well, Thomas Aquinas comes along. And Thomas is remembered primarily for his attempt to reconcile his Christian faith with science, which meant Aristotle and the texts of Aristotle and logic. And so people focus on that. But there's a third thing that very few people remember. But he devoted a great deal of attention to it, which was the law, the Roman law, the recovered Roman law, to reconcile that with science, Aristotle and moral philosophy, and his Christian faith, and to bring about this grand reconciliation. Something similar is happening among Jews with Moses Maimonides, reconciling uh, revealed religion and reason, and in the Islamic world with Ibn Rushd, or Averwiz, who is known in Latin uh, as well. And here's the problem. He says, well, on the one hand, you have Aristotle, who's the philosopher. And then you have the lawyers, and they're not saying the same thing. What to do about that? And he said, well, we can reconcile them. The definition from the Digest of Justinian is fitting if understood aright or correctly. The proper matter of justice consists of those things that belong to our intercourse with other men. Hence, the act of justice in relation to its proper matter and object is indicated in the words, and he quotes Isidore of Seville, rendering to each one his right, a man is said to be just because he respects the rights of others. Why is this important? It's important, uh, interestingly, because Robert Nozick comes to the same conclusion many years later without having ever read any Thomas Aquinas. Nozick talks about justice-preserving transformations. If you start out with a just set of entitlements and just rules of transformation, gift and uh, sale and so on, whatever comes out is just. Thomas is saying the same thing, but there's a deeper reason why this is important. And it has to do with the debate over social order and socialism. Ludwig Mises argued against socialism, no one can possibly know the best allocation of all the resources in society to produce the greatest overall outcome or, or product. It's not possible. No mind, no committee, no planning bureau can have that. The market economy helps to produce that and doesn't require that anyone know it. All you need to know is what's yours and what's mine, and we exchange, and we will exchange in such ways that we will generate more wealth. But we don't have to know what the order will be that emerges. 
The market is what produces the order. This is essentially what he has said about justice. No one can know the correct allocation of all the scarce goods in the world. It's not possible. Only God possibly could have that knowledge. But none of us do. But what I can know is what's mine and what's yours. And in almost all cases, we cooperate very fully on that basis. How many of you go to court all the time? Let's set aside the lawyers representing people. But among people who aren't lawyers going to court because you're being paid by someone else, not many of us go to court very much. Why? We don't have any occasion to do it. We know what the rules are, what's ours, what's yours, and we produce a just outcome so that the free society, the rights-governed society, is just. This is important because it undercuts the idea of social justice. Social justice is the idea that you have justice, everything happens in a just way, and then the outcome is unjust, and so you have to correct it and punish people for doing what was just. It severs the connection between the outcome and the process. And for Thomas, he said, a law-governed just society is one in which the processes are such that they generate just outcomes. It's a very important foundation of our uh, legal understanding. Now, the focus then narrows more to the rights of the individual. And I mentioned the levelers, this uh, group of libertarians. The term was not self-chosen, by the way. It was given to them uh, mainly by their enemies. Uh, just to avoid confusion, for those who are interested in English history from this period, there was another group who said, we are the true levelers, and they were the communists. They were, they were communists. And this has led to some confusion, uh, understanding who is a leveler and what did a leveler mean and so on. But the, the levelers were classical liberal, proto-liberals, libertarians, if you will. There were other groups at the time who said, no, no, we're the true levelers because we want to abolish property rights. The levelers were against that. They were very robustly in favor of property. And Richard Overton, when he was in prison, this is the title of his book. They like long titles. Uh, the first half of the page is the title of the book. Uh, an arrow against all tyrants and tyranny shot from the prison of Newgate into the prerogative bowels of the arbitrary House of Lords, and so on and so on. Uh, he was imprisoned repeatedly. Most of these people suffered imprisonment uh, and torture, but they were... We should be grateful they were very difficult people. You could not intimidate them. They would do what was right. And he, in his own case, was arrested. They said, come with us. And he said, no, we command you. And as he said, had you authority over my feet, my feet would obey you, but you do not. For I am a free man from the crown of my head to the soles of my feet, and they will not foot it for you. And so they dragged him by his hair through the streets of London to the prison. And he was just like, you know, you imagine that would hurt a lot. It was a really terrible form of torture. And people said, Richard, why? Just go with them. And he stuck to it. He said, I have no obligation to follow their orders. He said, had they said that I should be hanged, would I be obligated to hang myself? No. So he was a very tough guy. And he said, to every individual in nature is given an individual property by nature. Everybody has this. For everyone, as he is himself, so he has a self-propriety, else could he not be himself. Just to be yourself, you need to have this freedom. And in the Chinese word for liberty, 
which I cannot say correctly, and I apologize for any Chinese speakers here, Ziyu. It means to be an individual, has this sense of individuality, to be yourself, to be your own person. And this is what he was expressing. Uh, that right to freedom of religion that I mentioned was absolutely essential. And I want to read to you a beautiful section of a letter from George Washington who articulates a new age in the history of mankind. He was sent letters of congratulation by the Jewish congregations, synagogues. Congratulations, Mr. President. And they sort of thanked him for not having a pogrom. We're really grateful we get to live here, right? And his statement was so beautiful. I wish everybody would have a chance to read this. The citizens of the United States of America have a right to applaud themselves for having given to mankind examples of an enlarged and liberal policy, a policy worthy of limitation. All possess alike liberty of conscience and immunities of citizenship. It is now no more. Here, this so gentle. He's, he's turning back this, this gratitude expressed to him. He's not rejecting it. But he said, it is now no more that toleration is spoken of as if it were the indulgence of one class of people that another enjoyed the exercise of their inherent natural rights. For happily, the government of the United States, which gives to bigotry no sanction to persecution, no assistance, requires only that they who live under this protection should demean themselves as good citizens in giving it on all occasions their effectual support. So it's a very gentle way of thanking and then saying that, that thanks, those thanks are not necessary. These are your rights as equal citizens. It would be inconsistent with the frankness of my character. He was such a great writer. Not to avow that I am pleased with your favorable opinion of my administration and fervent wishes for my felicity. May the children of the stock of Abraham who dwell in this land continue to merit and enjoy the goodwill of the other inhabitants. While everyone shall sit in safety under his own vine and fig tree, and there shall be none to make him afraid. Just so beautiful. And this was articulating a new way of living together that none had to thank others for tolerating them. Nobody has to do that. We have our rights, and we may <clears throat> sit under our own vine and fig tree, and there shall be none to make him afraid. Now, following on this tradition, people articulate that everybody has these rights. You'll notice in his letter there's a kind of problem with it. There are some people who do not get to sit under their own vine and fig tree, but sit under someone else's and are enslaved. How can this be? Rob is someone who's dealt with these issues. I won't deal with them at great length, except to say that in the libertarian tradition, people ask this question. Why is it that some people do not enjoy these freedoms? So these two sisters, Sarah and Angelina Grimke, were very powerful campaigners against slavery. They grew up in a slaveholding family in South Carolina. And their hearts were changed. Sarah, the older one, she said the first time she saw a slave whipped, she wanted to immediately book passage on a ship to leave, to go someplace where there were no whippings. It scarred her so terribly to witness this. And she and her younger sister, Angelina, dedicated themselves to the cause of liberation of the slaves, the elimination of this monstrous wickedness. Uh, and then also, Equal rights for women, which followed on that. They were very strong on this question. And the, the 
rights, uh, women as a movement emerged very robustly out of the abolitionist movement in the United States. And many male abolitionists also signed on to it. And indeed, when a group had gone to the 1840 Anti-Slavery Convention, which is pictured in that small picture there, uh, and the American delegation had many women in it, they were invited, oh, the ladies shall sit in the gallery, the ladies' gallery. And the men, not all, but many of them, so this is outrageous. These are our colleagues in this cause. And they went and sat with the ladies in the women's gallery because they said, we will not be separated in this way. Uh, this famous image here, am I not a man and a brother, was uh, put on the medallions by Josiah Wedgwood. He was a very important, prominent businessman, a pioneer in pottery and a beautiful works of art, as well as everyday household China, as we call it today. Uh, Wedgwood was a strong abolitionist, and these medallions were sold to raise money for the anti-slavery movement. And every good household of good classical liberal people would have that over the fireplace in their home. Uh, William Wilberforce, this gentleman right here, uh, such a powerful figure, campaigned for decades, 50 years, for the abolition of slavery. And there's a powerful movie I really recommend very much, Amazing Grace, about his struggle against slavery and his final victory. And of course, one of the greatest Americans, Frederick Douglass, a person I admire enormously. His two autobiographies are very powerful books. He was an amazing human being, one of the American founders. He participated in the reestablishment of America on its own proper foundations. He was a believer in freedom for everyone. He liberated himself. He liberated millions of other people. He was a believer in limited government and the gold standard and free trade and all the other uh, common libertarian principles. And then I've added someone I admire personally for so many other reasons, Rose Wilder Lane, also a champion for equal rights for women, but a clarion call for individualism against collectivism. She had gone to the Soviet Union as a young woman see this great new experiment, and she said this is a nightmare, and dedicated her life to warning the world about collectivism. She was a very powerful writer, independent woman who made her living uh, by her own writing. Now, the, all of them exemplified a very important principle that I consider the libertarian creed, and it was put, I saw this in Brazil when I was visiting some years ago, and there was a monument to this man, Joaquim Nabucco, he was a poet and a diplomat and literary figure, and he dedicated his life to eliminating slavery in Brazil. And he summed up for me what it means to be a real libertarian. Not just to be for your freedom, which is easy. Most people want their freedom to be defended. But to defend the freedom of other people, that's harder. So to take a, a simple example, I don't smoke marijuana. It's not part of my life. I did try many decades ago, and I didn't like it. So I don't like to be around it. It's not in my home. But it, it's very upsetting to me, and I consider it unjust that other people are imprisoned because they have a plant in their house. It's just not right. It upsets me. Although it doesn't affect my freedom particularly, I don't smoke it. So why should I be concerned if I'm only concerned about my freedom? It's because I'm concerned about the freedom of other people. I'm not a member of a small religious minority being persecuted someplace because of their religious faith, whether it's Christian or Islam or Jewish or whatever it might happen to be, or Yazidi. But it's not right that that happens to people. And I'm willing to take action to try to defend them. 
His statement is so beautiful. You should educate your children and yourselves in the love for the freedom of others. That's the test. When you love the freedom of other people, not only your own. That's the test of being a libertarian. And that is what will give you the courage to defend even your own freedom. When you know it is just and right. <clears throat> Property and rights. And I'll mention this very quickly just to sort of deal with it. Some people say, oh, you're for property rights, uh, but not human rights. Well, let's look at how this has been dealt with uh, in the literature. What does property mean? I'm just taking Locke as an example. Life, liberty, and estate, not your stuff. In English today, the language has shrunk down to say, this is my property. Locke would say, what a weird thing. That's a clicker. <laughs> it's not your property. Your property is a right. He would have said, thou hast a property in thine clicker, right? You have a property in it, not that it is your property. Property is a right. And it's much more sophisticated as lawyers know because property is a bundle of rights for land and other things. You can take some elements out and transfer them. Lives, liberties, and estates, which I call by the general name of properties. You have a property in your life, a property in your liberty, and a property in your stuff, your estate or what is today called property. Now, the second element, order can emerge spontaneously. And here, we could cite Adam Smith, or Wilhelm von Humboldt, or Friedrich Hayek, but I think Lao Tzu put it very neatly. This idea of Wu Wei, uh, it's my Chinese friends, I'm not a Chinese scholar by any means, but I, I know lots of people who are, and they say it's not translated well into English as inactivity. It's not quite right. It means active inactivity which is harder to grasp. Lao Tzu said something a bit cryptic. He said that governing a great country is like frying a small fish. I wonder, like, what does that mean? Well, if you poke at it with a fork all the time, it won't be any good. Don't intervene. Set the conditions. Let it emerge. The more prohibitions there are, the poorer the people will be. The more edicts are promulgated, the more thieves and bandits there will be. A sage has said, so long as I do nothing, this is this Wu Wei, the people will of themselves be transformed. So long as I love quietude, the people will of themselves go straight. So long as I act only by inactivity, the people will of themselves become prosperous. In other words, the goal of the ruler, the law enforcer, is to get the rules right and stand back, and then let the order emerge out of it, not to try to create the order directly. Now, that libertarian understanding of order is very different from most people's understanding of order. And, oops, I've got Aquinas under there. Goodness, that should have been uh, James Buchanan, uh, the Nobel Prize winner, known as Aquinas to his intimate friends. Uh, but he said, there's not the case that there's the order we want, and how do we get it, right? We could have socialism, we could have regulation, we could have intervention, or we could have free market. He says, instead, the order of the market emerges only from the process of voluntary exchange among the participating individuals. The order is itself defined as the outcome of the process that generates it. There's no order pre-existing its own emerging. Order is defined in the process of its emergence. It's a very radical different idea of order as social coordination. Hayek distinguished different kinds of order. There's the order of the graveyard. All the stones are in the right order. Right? That's ordered. The order of the marching army. Marching 
in military precision. That's orderly. Most people think of order like that. But there are other kinds of orders. There is the order of a beehive of an insect colony, which, by the way, is not run by a queen. She's just sitting around laying eggs all the time. It's run by the complex order itself. There's the order of the market economy. There are all kinds of orders, and they're not like the order of the graveyard or the order of the marching army. They're more complex forms of order. As Buchanan, Aquinas said, absent this process, there is and can be no order. And that's a very different idea from the usual one our socialist friends have of order. Think of North Korea as an orderly society in that sense. Now, there are some interactions that produce harmony and mutual benefit, and others produce conflict and disorder. This is the issue of getting the rules right. We're all accustomed to talking about, thinking about the zero-sum game. Some of the payoffs is equal to zero. Most people think most of life is a zero-sum game. Somebody gained, somebody lost. Somebody lost, someone else gained. That's how people usually instinctively or just reactively think about gains and losses. These are very rare. They almost never happen. Some obscure cases in gambling and a few kinds of financial markets and blackboards. That's where you find zero-sum games, not in re the real world. Negative-sum games are much more common. The sum of the payoffs is less than zero. All acts of coercion, violence, robbery, uh, corruption, these are all negative-sum gains. Someone gained, but the gain was much smaller than the losses suffered by other people. So you go out this evening, let's say, not in this nice neighborhood, but you what, far away, you get lost. Someone robs you. They, if they rob me, I don't know, I've got maybe $60 in my pocket. Uh, they get the money uh, and run away. But we had to fight. And the beating they suffered from me will be so severe, their medical bills will be much greater than the $60. But maybe they would have killed me. So I would have lost my life, which is worth a lot more than $60 to me. And think about corruption. I go to lots of countries where people think, if only we could get the money our dictator stole from us, we'd be rich. I say, look, it's a fantasy. You could sell all of Imelda Marcos's shoes, all of 5,000 of them, and what would you get? Nothing, nothing. It's a tiny fraction of the harm that the Marcos family visited on the Philippines. And you go to every dictatorship in the world. The harm is much greater than the benefits. But there's another kind, the positive sum game. The sum of the benefits is greater than zero. We can look at it mathematically or as a game, but John Stossel, my friend the journalist, put it much more directly. I never thought about it this way. He said it's the double thank you. You go into the store and you buy something, and because you're a nice person, you say thank you. And the merchant, being a nice person, says thank you. That's weird. There's something weird about that. Normally, when I say thank you, you say, you're welcome. But if I say thank you and you say thank you, it should make us stop and think. So imagine, though, if I said, thank you, I fall off the stage here, and someone helps me up, and I say thank you, and that other person says, no, no, well, you, thank you. <laughs> That's something wrong with this world. <laughs> but mutual exchange is thank you, thank you. It's a double thank you. It shows we both benefited from it. That's what we want. We want to convert negative sum games into positive sum games. That's part of what the libertarian reform agenda is about. 
changing negative sum games into positive sum games. And the transformation of the world uh, because of that has been unbelievable and staggering. Uh, Angus Madison, the economic statistician, uh, attempted to measure per capita income around the world, all the different regions from the year one. There's technically no year zero up until just before he died. Uh, and it's pretty amazing. It's flat. There's a tiny rise in the period of the high Middle Ages here, which I talked about the communes and so on, the birth of trade, a collapse in the general crisis of the 17th century due to wars all across Europe and Asia. And then in the early 19th century, it takes off. Astonishing. And this is what needs to be explained. What made this happen? Many people today think the world was always like this. It wasn't. It was like this. Poverty and very little social change. And now the modern world has generated new complex forms of social order, new kinds of coordination. No one could have imagined it. I tried to think sometimes if I would think of my grandparents or my great-grandparents and say, I tweeted something. It's like, what? Or how little time it takes to travel around the world today, or just all the things we can do. When I was a boy with my father, we watched a TV show called Star Trek. And they had these cool communicators. And you could say, ship, do this. Send us there. I thought, That's cool. I have one. But it's better. I watch movies. I can get the news. I can read books. I, I, I talk to people, and I can see them. It's, it's, it's much better than this pitiful thing they had in Star Trek. Uh, the world is transforming before our eyes in a system that Schumpeter called creative destruction. These are some of the wisest words ever written in economics. The problem that is usually being visualized is how capitalism administers existing structures, whereas the relevant problem is how it creates and destroys them. The example I like to use uh, deal with college students, I say, how many of you have ever used a typewriter? I won't ask this group. Some of you may have. How many of you have used a typewriter? Usually not one hand goes up. A friend of mine uh, told me years ago that his son had come to pull him in. He said, Daddy, look at this. He said, well, what? He said, look, look. There's the typewriter. He says, it's a computer, but where's the screen? <laughs> and his sisters examined it, and she said, oh, it's a printer that prints in real time. <laughs> so I said, OK, <laughs> interesting adaptation. Uh, that industry is finished. There used to be typewriter repairmen everywhere, typewriter repair shops. It was a job. People had a career. When I was a boy, I thought, I'll become a typewriter repairman. You always have work. Well, it's not true. That industry is dead. It's finished. It's over. And we have a new one. We have the computer industry uh, that can do so many more things. I never could get my typewriter to play movies, for example. Uh, that's creative destruction. It's destroying old kinds of order and creating new ones. Not, not just products, but business models, uh, ways of doing business, ways of delivering services and value. Now, it upsets old patterns, but it creates new orders of actions, this phrase that Hayek used. Not the order of the cemetery or the military the marching unit, but orders of actions. What we need is that the separate actions of individuals it will result in an overall order 
if they do not only unnecessarily interfere with another, but also there is uh, <clears throat> uh, the success of the action of the individuals depends on some matching actions by others. And there's a good chance that this will occur. This generates a more complex form of social order than the alleged certainty offered us by planners and socialists and others. Now, the conception of law appropriate to that, and we're going to deal with law very quickly, uh, is very different from the one we hear from most theorists of law. Law is a command. It's imposed on us. Don Fuller noted it's the enterprise of subjecting human conduct to the governance of rules. Much more general understanding. eBay is creating law. Law is emerging on the internet. All kinds of law is emerging all around us when people subject their behavior to rules that allows people to have a good chance their actions will be met by the actions of others. That's what that's about. And law emerges from our human behavior. It's not just an imposed thing by a powerful person. So leading into the last section on the rule of law. James Herrickton put it in a phrase that is often indirectly quoted, Seeing that they that make the laws and commonwealths are but men, the main question seems to be how a commonwealth comes to be an empire of laws and not of men. And that is indeed the key question. How are we to be governed by laws and not by power or arbitrary impulse? Let's go back then, as I mentioned, to Magna Carta and so on, attempts to impose law on rulers. These are very important foundations of our constitutional tradition. And then the competition of laws. Magdeburg was one of those communes that had very good laws in Germany. And other people said, look how well governed they are. It's a very prosperous place. And lawyers were sent to copy their laws. And many Magdeburg cities, they were called, all across Europe were established that used the laws of Magdeburg and even had used their city as the uh, Supreme Court, if you will, to deal with uh, legal disputes. So you have this spread of constitutionalism and rule of law uh, all across Europe. And then here I'm going to draw from uh, a sociologist, the most interesting person, very friendly to classical liberalism, named Norbert Elias. And Elias began to study books of etiquette as his sociological research. And he found something odd. Books for adults were so disgusting and gross, saying, don't do these things. And they changed over time because people internalized those rules. So old medieval books would be things like, um, do not spit across the dinner table. So, okay, you know, check. No one did that last night. I was very grateful. <laughs> All of you read the book. Uh, do not blow your nose on your hand and then shake hands with someone. Mm -hmm. Okay, okay, no one's done that here. Long list of things that are really nasty. Um, Erasmus wrote books of etiquette for adults that are things that if you saw a small child do them, you'd be shocked. You'd say, where are those kids' parents? It's terrible. We internalized them. And here's the key, as he pointed out. When people became more interdependent, more division of labor, everyone dependent on everyone else. We internalized rules of mutual respect. We couldn't have lords and commoners anymore. Lords had to accommodate themselves to commoners and be respectful of them. We had to internalize these principles. 
he said, the armor of restraints is fastened to the degree which is gradually taken for granted by people in democratic industrial societies. People are less impulsive, less violent. You may not think it, but we may live in the least violent epoch in the history of the human race. It's really quite astonishing. It doesn't look like it because nonviolence is not news. Violence is news. News is always dominated by violence. But look at the objective data. There's less violence in the world of all kinds, including husbands striking wives, uh, spousal abuse, murder, rape, and so on, is down almost, almost everywhere in the world. There are some outliers. And as he pointed out, that the demands on your self-control increase. A freer society requires more self-control, less external control, contrary to what the socialists told us for 100 years. More complex societies require more centralized control. This is not true. It's historically falsifiable. And I really recommend LAS's books, which are immensely readable and entertaining and enjoying as well. Now, Locke traced out this relationship between law and liberty. And I'll, I'll wrap up with this. Uh, many people think, oh, law is opposed to freedom. And he said, that's absolutely wrong. Law is not the enemy of freedom. Instead, it's a necessary condition. And this, I think, is the one I like people to take away with. Where there is no law, there is no freedom. For liberty is to be free from restraint and violence from others which cannot be unless which cannot be where there is no law. A liberty to dispose and order as he lists, that is, as you desire, his person, actions, possessions, and his whole property within the allowance of those laws under which he is, and therein not to be subject to the arbitrary will of another, but freely follow his own. And I learned the depth of this in lots of countries I travel. I spend most of my time outside the United States and sometimes very uh, disorderly and chaotic uh, places. Uh, and... I came to such an appreciation of the importance of the rule of law uh, for liberty. We learned this in the Soviet Union. Milton Friedman, to his great credit, acknowledged this. Uh, he used to say, uh, under the Soviet Union, he said, there are three things you have to do. Privatize, privatize, and privatize. Aha, funny joke. He later said, you know, we did not understand the problem. You cannot privatize if there's no law. And they did not have a legal system. You need the law, the rule of law. You privatize into a market where there's exchange and property rights and so on. You cannot privatize into a, a void. The rule of law is absolutely uh, central. So the libertarian thesis, the three pillars, as I understand it, individual rights, spontaneous order, rule of law, and then the structure. When rights are well-defined and legally secure, including the rights to contract, Free people generate orders of actions that are voluntarily coordinate the behavior of millions and billions of people for mutual benefit. But they require the rule of law for that to happen, to secure those rights. But then the hard problem, to subject the organs to enforce the law themselves to the law. That is the hardest problem of all, the one that the American founders wrestled with. With that... Uh, we have just a teeny little, how are we on time? Just a teeny little bit of time, so if we have some discussion, I would welcome your thoughts. Thank you very much.
Hi, thank you for that. Um, you mentioned uh, Nozick earlier, and I was thinking of Rawls during your lecture. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm just wondering, because I know that Rawls gets a lot of criticism for um, perhaps veering away from some of these principles um, into what could become overregulation. But I've also heard a lot of defensive Rawls as representing a lot of these principles just in a developed system. So I was wondering what you thought about John Rawls within this context. There are a lot of ways to think about Rawls. Uh, first thing, his book, A Theory of Justice, is I read it three times from cover to cover. I said, I'm going to sit down and read this book. And each time, I had to control myself from the desire to kill myself. It's, it is the most boring book that has ever been written in any language. And the reason is, though, it's, a, it's because he wanted to be precise. And so he just repeats the same language over and over, the same formulas. He just, God, kill me. I cannot read this. But he wanted to be precise, and I do admire that. In the context of the book, uh, when he was writing it, uh, first thing, he and Buchanan and Tulloch were actually working on similar things. The veil of ignorance uh, is very similar to what they write about in the uh, 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 I'm trying to remember the, the name of their uh, very important big book. Um, about choosing rules, constitutional rules, going to the constitutional level of rule choosing. The second thing is that he was writing at a time when the default was pure egalitarianism and equality of outcomes. And he wanted to justify some inequality might be beneficial. You get paid more money than I get paid because you're doing something very valuable and this will induce you to do it. So he gave this complex argument for why some uh, inequalities would be acceptable. So in the context of the time, he's arguing against communism and presenting a very ingenious argument to get people to say, who could object to it if it was to the benefit of everyone in society, including the least well-off? It's not only benefiting the highly talented, well-off people, it's benefiting the least well-off. And if that inequality is to their benefit, surely you could not argue against it. It's a very powerful argument uh, addressing an egalitarian. Uh, Hayek was friendly to it uh, initially when, it, when he was coming out with journal articles on this, as was Buchanan and others. So he should not be seen as an extreme leftist. This is a mistake to understand him in that way. There is one element of his thought that I think is inherently illiberal or anti-liberal. And then there's his later development. He becomes much more illiberal as he gets older. The first is that he says that these principles are the ones that would govern us if you cannot choose the society. You're born into it, and you will die in it. So you cannot choose to affiliate with any different social groupings. And when I read it, maybe in the third time, I remember being puzzled by that, and, and I thought about it. So I wrote a long essay, which is in that book on realizing freedom. I said, that doesn't sound like a free society. It sounds like East Germany. The only way you get in is by being born, and the only way you get out is by dying. You can't leave. And so I began to think, I think that's a very illiberal premise. Why well, can't? people leave a social order that they find not conducive to their interests. And so I wrote, and if you want to read my long essay, I teased out 
the implications of taking that more seriously and it ends up with a very illiberal uh, outcome and certainly not as determinate as he thought it would be. And then the next point is he, as he got older, he became much more relativist. He, he buckled into the communitarian critics and he said, oh, no, no, I didn't mean this is for all rational agents. I just meant it's for people like me. And he distinguishes between the rational and the reasonable. And I never picked up until his later works why that's different. They sound the same, but they're not. What he ends up saying is, well, these are the principles that would govern the Harvard faculty lounge. But they don't have any universal application. And his subsequent work became even more relativist and caved in on fundamental liberal principles, in my opinion. So I think he kind of abandoned liberalism uh, dealing with questions of, of uh, a, a complex world. He abandoned the idea of universal standards and rights. But he's most important thinker, so I don't denigrate his significance in this regard. And I think you're right, he's often misunderstood uh, as arguing things he's, he's not arguing. He's not a communist or a socialist or anything like that by any means. But we can continue that later then. Okay. Thank, Thank you. Thank you. Hi, yes. So I would like to know what the libertarian response is to, there seems to be a failure in market economies to an extent uh, to distribute to people that are in abject poverty. And, you know, I, I realize the need for a very uncomfortable safety net that people shouldn't be in for uh, any length of time. But it seems to me that the incentive to distribute is profit. And if there's no profit to be gained, I mean, we have the productive capacity to feed the world easily. We just don't have the incentive to distribute. So I'm wondering what the libertarian response is to that very fundamental question. Yeah, that's a very important one. Um, I did edit a book that has some things you'll find interesting, I think, called After the Welfare State. Are there options other than the welfare state for dealing with questions of abject poverty and terrible bad luck uh, and so on? There are several different ways to look at it. The first is that our welfare state is not primarily about poverty. It's churning among the middle classes. So farm price supports and farm subsidies, which cost many billions of dollars, do not go to poor people and do not help them. They actually raise prices of food to poor people. They make food more expensive. So the welfare state is not a strategy for helping people in poverty. May I sit down? Oh, yeah, of course. Okay. I'm sorry. <laughs> Good. Yes. Um, the vast bulk of it is for other people and politically connected people. Uh, the second thing is, if you had an actual safety net that said, if you're not able to take care of yourself for whatever reason, it might be some, you did poorly in the genetic lot lottery, as an example, you had a congenital disease that's very hard to insure against, uh, and so on, that if there were a social safety net provided by the state, this wouldn't bother me. Uh, but that's not what we have. What we have is this gigantic thing, like the social security system, that robes everybody into it, delivers a negative rate of return to young people, diminishes savings, and is generating an unfunded liability that's staggering. It's in the hundreds of trillions of dollars. 
That's the big issue. And the very small percentage of welfare state expenditures are oriented towards actual people in poverty. So we could get rid of all those others and have lots of money for income transfers if that's what we wanted to do. It's not a budgetary question. There is a question, though, of what is the best way for people to escape poverty. And we could distinguish between those people who have just a cascade of bad fortune, the obvious one being born of the congenital problem. You, you can't insure against that very effectively. Um, and a system in which people can help themselves. And there were mutual aid societies that were very active in Europe and the United States, Canada, Australia, all over the world, that, in which people helped each other. And I think it's a better alternative. So normally we think there's charity and there's the state. But there's a other range of options as well. Self-help, which is very important, encouraging people to make better decisions in their own lives and to basically not be poor by making better decisions. And in the book I did called Self-Control or State Control at the end is a series of resources for helping people to make better decisions. I think is a useful uh, activity. But then there's also mutual aid. Uh, how many of you are members of the uh, Knights of Columbus, the Masons, the Elks, the Moose, and so on? One? One. Okay. My parents were, and their parents were, as far as I know, their parents were, and I don't know uh, back beyond that. Uh, that was a very important part of their lives. Uh, people of my generation, so people out there like you or like me, we are not. And younger people have never heard of them. But these groups were huge and powerful. And no one was allowed to go hungry if there was one of these clubs in the society or in the town. So in Germany, let's take a, a simple example, and then we'll wrap up. There's a group called the Schutzenvereine, the protective associations, and they, all they do today is march in parades. And they're also sort of sources of a little bit right-wing political activism that's unpleasant. But they used to have a very deep role in society. They took care of their neighbors. And when I was in Dusseldorf with friends, and there was a big parade, Germans love parades. Uh, and the last one was a whole group of men in black marching very slowly behind a hearse. I said, what was their function? What do they do? Well, it's now it's a party club. But originally, it was the group that no one who died in the town, who had no family, would go unburied and without mourners. So if a total stranger or someone on the margins of society died, this group would make sure there would be a proper burial and mourners. Now they don't have any function anymore. These have become absurd appendages. Around the corner from me is the Masonic Hall. No one ever goes in or out anymore. My father's day, he went all the time, and they did things for each other. I would like to see more of that and less state atomization. But your question's a deep and a powerful one. I just think we need to think outside of the box of charity and, uh, and welfare state. There are other options. We did have one minute for the last question there, if you just want to state it. And I'll just give you a yes or no. <laughs> you said it was almost time, so I... <laughs> okay. My question was, is it far more difficult or even impossible when you do not have the idea of a deity to have humanism 
persist without a natural, you know, without some idea of a deity or a greater force, greater power? That, that's a deep question, five seconds. I think the answer is yes. And the reason is we know that there are societies like Japan that have a high degree of ethical behavior, but religiosity is very different from what people think of it in, in Europe and the Middle East. Uh, they have a very different understanding of religion, but high degrees of ethical conduct and the highest measured level of honesty in transactions on the planet. And yet most of them do not believe in a transcendent God. So it's just something else is happening there that has encouraged ethical behavior outside of a transcendent God. I don't claim to know what it is, uh, but I think the answer is it's not necessary, but it might be more propitious for it. With that, thank you very much, and we're meeting again.